The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Well, church, I hope you're doing well. Uh, If you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and grab them and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. While you're getting there, I know that um, some of you have been a bit concerned with, uh, for our staff lately. I did want to give you a progress report. So Sandra, our children's director, did in fact have baby Miles, and uh, they are home now healthy, so praise God for that. And then second, uh, we commissioned out Dan Holman, kind of our first missionary that we're sending out from our church, and we didn't know when he was going to go, and so we thought, well, let's commission now so we don't miss it. We made the right decision. Uh, As of yesterday, he and his family left, and they have been, they're out, and they're on the ground now. So praise God that uh, that we commissioned him last week because he's not here this week. So uh, we have a lot to be grateful for. God's doing a lot in our church. And um, listen, this text that we're going to look at has really been, it's been wrecking me this week. And um, I just want to be really honest. My prayer is that God will continue to move this morning collectively the way he's been doing in me privately. All right. That is my prayer for our time together this morning. And so As we approach our our Bibles, I want to pray for us, and then let's dig in together. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for speaking. We thank you, Lord, for revealing yourself to us. We thank you that we get to look at your, your scripture. This morning, we pray that you would just lead and guide us. I pray that you convict us. I pray that you move in us. Lord, um... Would you not only allow us to read your word, but would you allow your word to read us this morning? And it's for your glory and in your son's name, the name of Jesus Christ, that we pray this. Amen. Amen. Uh, I want you to think for a moment about evangelism. To certain people, the thought of evangelism tends to turn our stomach. Because for certain people, the thought of being evangelized tends to turn our stomach. And so, in other words, we don't like being on the receiving end of that, and so we are very uncomfortable with the thought of being on the giving end. Does that make sense? Um, Now, no offense to any salespeople in the room. No offense to you. But listen, I have such a strong aversion to being sold anything. You could be selling me something that I need. And because you're selling it to me, I'm going to tell you no. I'm weird. I know. I don't know why. Let me give you an example. We were walking, uh, my wife and I were walking in the mall um, not that long ago. And you know those center kiosks? So those are hit or miss. Either you have the kiosk worker who's on their phone and does not care if you're there or not. Or you have the overly aggressive kiosk worker who wants to rub cream on your face, wants to comb your hair, wants to do something, right? And I am not a fan of that. I want none of that. And I remember one time, 
don't judge me. Candace and I were walking, and, and one of these extremely aggressive kiosk workers uh, said something like, hey, can I give you a free gift? And um, I remember saying, no, I don't. <laughs> and, and walking away, and, and you can relate, some of you I know can relate to this. But I remember Candace looking at me after we passed, and was like, what was that? First of all, you didn't even answer him. Like, were you listening? And second of all, he said, free gift. And I was like, babe, nothing's free. I don't want it, right? I, I have a problem. But I wonder if this is the way that we feel when we think of evangelism. We don't want to, maybe I'm the only weird one here, but we don't want to be the person making them feel like the way I felt in that mall. No, I don't. Like, we don't want to be that person. We don't want to make people feel uncomfortable with that. And this morning, like I said, this week I've really been wrestling with this. But this morning, I want to challenge our perspective of evangelism. And I want to challenge, kind of shift our thoughts for the way we share the gospel. Um, And before we get into our text in 1 Corinthians 9, I want you to consider with me Jesus and the word incarnation. So incarnation, um, if you're unfamiliar with the word, is typically a word that we hear a lot around Christmas. Incarnation is, it literally means put on flesh, right? So incarnation in a theological term is absolutely incredible. It's this idea that, think about this, Jesus, who is God, perfect and on his throne, Jesus does not deal with us from a distance. Instead, he comes down. He steps in. John 1 that we just read says, the word put on flesh and the word dwelt among us. In other words, instead of Jesus in dealing with a sinful world, instead of Jesus saying, you know what? They need to figure out a way to get to me which praise God he did not do that because I am so sure that if he did, we would never get to him. Instead, Jesus, in order to deal with the sin of the world, says, you know what, I'm going to come down. I'm going to come down, not require them to fix themselves. I'm going to step in. This is the incarnation. The word becomes flesh. Now, why? Why did Jesus do this? Why the incarnation? Well, he did this to reconcile us, a broken people, to himself. He did this to save us, that we can know him. Hear me, because this is absolutely crucial for our text this morning. Jesus came knowing that some would see, that some would hear, that some would believe, And at the same time, he came knowing that many would hear, many would see, and that many would reject him. He knew that he was going to face rejection, even death at the hands of that rejection. This is the beauty of the incarnation. Jesus came, he incarnated He knew he would face rejection, but it was worth it for the sum, even though he knew that the many would reject him. Now, fast forward with me, if you will. 
a few years later to first century Corinth, where we find ourselves in this text. This young church was a little bit older than our church, just a little bit. This young church was full of individuals who had just come to know Jesus. They had just walked away from what once was, and now they're trying to follow Jesus, learning how to live their lives together in light of the gospel. And, and Paul, in this letter, is addressing some of the concerns and the issues that kind of bubble up as they're trying to figure this out. Issues like human sexuality, issues of sin, division, idolatry, even issues and conflicts regarding worship styles. Paul is hitting this, and, and he's doing this so that the church can know how to love God and love each other better. And it's with this heart that we've been looking at the last couple weeks that Paul urges the people of Corinth, hey, be ready to lay down your rights in order to love your brother and your sister well. Be willing to lay that down. I know that is super countercultural, which we talked about but Paul says, I know this is hard, and I know this goes against your culture. But then last week, what we saw is Paul says loud and clear, I know it's hard, but follow my lead. And last week, Dan did such a great job walking through this. We saw Paul, the way Paul led by example in laying down his rights so that other can, others can come to know Christ. So I want to read this in, in verse 12. It says, nevertheless... We, that's him and Barnabas, have not made use of this right, but we endure, listen to this, anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Now, this brings us to our text this morning. And I want to read this thing all together, and then we'll, we'll camp and we'll walk through it. So, um, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may, that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, as we look at this incredible text, I want you to notice with me the structure. I want you to notice what I'm going to call the bookends, all right? So it starts in verse 19, and you see this, though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Bookend number one. As we look at the end of the text, you see a very similar statement. He says, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. You see these bookends, and then what we have is everything in between the bookends tells us how he did that. All right, so follow me. He says, I made myself a servant of all. And now here is what that looked like for Paul. Verse 20, to the Jew, I became a Jew to win more Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. You follow the logic here. To those not under the law, I'm not going to repeat it all. 
He became like those not under the law to win those not under the law, right? I just repeated it. I did what I told you I was not going to do. And to the weak, I became the weak, that I might win more of the weak. So do you hear the theme here? You hear this theme here. Paul is saying that he would intentionally step into the world of those he's trying to reach the people he's trying to reach in order to share the gospel more effectively. He would step in in hopes that they would be won by the gospel. Now, I want to do some context work here because it'll help us kind of understand this a little bit more. There are two groups that had emerged in this young church. On the one hand, you had the Jewish believers who believed the gospel of Jesus, loved Jesus, and who were under the Mosaic law, who abided by the Mosaic law. Let me give you a real easy example, the dietary laws, all right? So they loved Jesus, believed Jesus, and would not eat bacon. Make sense? No. (laughs) Well played. So that was one group. Then over here on the other side, you had another group of believers, the Gentile believers, who again loved Jesus, believed in Jesus, and who did not live under the Mosaic law. For example, they did not observe the dietary laws. Right? Follow me? These two groups of people We're living and worshiping under the same roof in the same church. That sounds fun, doesn't it? And let me keep this in mind. You didn't have first, second, third, fourth Baptists at this time. You couldn't just go across the street. This was one church, all under the same roof. Now, um, although we don't have a perfect apples-to-apples comparison here, in our context, in our world today, I was reminded about a really good example that we do have in our world today. We are incredibly divided politically. As I say that, you're like, don't do it, pastor. Don't go politics. (laughs) We are incredibly divided. The Democrat-Republican divide. Let's talk about this for a moment because I heard a story Uh, It's from a pastor who pastors in the heart of the political heart of our nation, Washington, D.C. So this pastor is a pastor there, and he was telling a story about how one week he was criticized. Uh, By two people on the same week, he was criticized in his church. Both of these people he loved. Both of these people were members of his church. Both of these people heavily involved, just all in, right? And, and they criticized him because he failed to comment on something President Trump had done or said. And so they approached him, and, and the first person comes up to him and criticizes him for failing to publicly condemn Trump for what he had said, to call out the sin, to take what he called a Christian stand. So he criticized this pastor for that. After hearing that, the pastor went about his business, and then a few moments later, the second person came and criticized this pastor. Only this time, he criticized this pastor for not publicly supporting Trump. Do you not know that God puts these men in office 
Should we not be praying for them? Should we not be rallying around? Is this not the Christian thing to do? Again, this is fun. Here's the reality here for this pastor in Washington, D.C. He looks out and under his same roof, you see two individuals who see the world very differently and have very different opinions side by side worshiping the same Jesus. He looks out and his responsibility is to shepherd them, to love them, to pastor them well, and to point them to Jesus well when they each hold very different opinions. His task becomes, how will I preserve the message of the gospel? How will I preserve the unity of the church under Christ? How will I do this? Now, I realize that this is not a perfect example. There are complexities on both sides, right? But here is what this example does do for us. This example does paint a picture of the kind of fundamental differences that can exist in the church. Let's make this personal. In this room, this example does paint the kind of hostility that can happen that can be expressed and felt as a result of these kinds of fundamental differences within the church. This example does paint for us a picture of the kind of difficulty that the church can experience to fight and maintain unity in the gospel. So here, Paul is looking at this church, deeply divided, divided right in half, and Paul says, Follow me. I will step into both of their worlds. I will step in to the worlds of both of these groups of people. Paul says, I will become all things to all people. And hear me, this is not because Paul lacks a backbone. This is not because Paul lacks conviction. This is not because Paul doesn't have anything to say regarding the thing that they are arguing about. In fact, just... A good example, Paul deals with this all throughout the, the New Testament. I think of Ephesians where Paul says, hey, that dividing wall is gone between Jew and Greek. It's gone. There's not two. There's one. Right? Paul speaks to this. I, I think an even better example is Acts 15 when Paul and Barnabas literally are arguing before the Jerusalem council, making this point, talking about these issues. Here's my point. Paul had a backbone. Paul had conviction. Paul did speak to these issues. Yet, Paul says, I will become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. In other words, introducing them to the God of our theology is more important to Paul than winning a, a theological argument about a lesser issue. So Paul says, Although I know I'm free to eat bacon. When I am reaching a Jew with the gospel, I will abstain from eating it. As not to introduce to them yet another barrier. In other words, the gospel of Christ might be offensive to them, but I will not add more offense to them. On the other hand, 
to those who are not under the law, to those Gentile believers in the church, when they're getting together, they invite me to have a cookout and they serve bacon. I'm not going to make a scene. I'm not going to make a scene as to introduce to them yet another obstacle in the way of the gospel. In other words, the gospel of Christ might be an offense to them. The Bible tells us, warns us of that. But Paul says, I'm not going to add more. I'm not going to add more offense to them over these lesser issues. Now, this is huge. And before we begin to kind of unpack this and apply this, um, I think it's really important to say what this text does not say. Um, First, hear me, we are not called to sin in order to reach sinners. Okay? We are not called to sin in order to reach sinners. Not only does this text not say that, but that happens to fly in the face in conflict with all of Scripture. You're going to have a hard time defending that one. Right? A good example of this is even Jesus. Jesus, we know when he came, he, he spent his time with sinners. He loved them. He ate with them. He ministered to them. He was in their homes, right? We know that about Jesus. But notice our scripture does not say that Jesus engaged in their sin with them in order to love them well and to reach them. On the contrary, we know our Savior was sinless and perfect. So, In other words, Jesus incarnating into a sinful world does not mean that Jesus engaged in the sin of that world, right? This is important for us to understand because all of us have neighbors or coworkers or friends that right now are living their lives in a front to the gospel. And, and a lot of us, our hearts are breaking that they, would, that they would see, that they would feel, that they would respond to the gospel, But in order to bring the gospel to them, in order to get involved in their lives so that we can share the gospel, does not mean that we involve ourselves in their sin. Paul says, I become all things to all people. Paul is not saying that he went against scripture in order to reach people. Um, Here's a really overly simplistic example uh, for all the men in the room. Let's just pretend for a moment you want to reach your buddy with the gospel. You notice that your buddy after work every day just goes and hangs out at a strip club. You should not join him. Unless you're blind. You should not join him. (laughs) All right? You should not join them. In fact, the enemy would want nothing more than to bring you down into the sin that you're trying to free your buddy from. It's kind of a two-for-one deal for the enemy here. That's not what he's calling us to do. You you shouldn't join him. However, you could go to lunch with him. How about this? Invite him to a really good dinner so he's not at that strip club for dinner, right? We can involve ourselves into their lives without involving ourselves in the sin. So Paul is not calling us to sin in order to reach sinners. This one is is just as important here. We are not called to agree with all people in order to reach all people. Okay? We're not called to... Let me put it this way. Paul had strong opinions. Paul had strong opinions regarding even this, law and grace. He had strong opinions. Paul was not neutral here. 
However, Paul sees the bigger picture of the gospel going forth. He sees the bigger picture, and he steps into the lives of both of these groups of people who see the world very differently in order to reach them with the gospel. Paul is not calling us to agree with everyone, to have no opinions, to have no backbone, to be neutral on everything in order to reach the world with the gospel. Instead, he's calling us to keep the primary thing primary. Um, And the gospel is primary, so let us not let anything lesser be an obstacle to that. This is what Paul is calling us here to. And I want to bring us back to our example of politics for a moment. About to get real. Republicans, if you cannot share a relationship or even a friendly conversation with a Democrat, you are an obstacle to the gospel for them. Democrats, if you cannot share a friendship, a relationship, a conversation with a Republican, you are an obstacle to the gospel for them. If you are unable to interact with each other because of our disagreements, then we are an obstacle to gospel engagement. Notice I did not say that we all agreed. We must be able to lay it down in order to engage others, love others who disagree with us for the purpose of reaching them with the good news of Jesus Christ. You don't need to hold neutral opinions in order to engage people with the gospel, to share the gospel. Instead, you need to be able to lay down your secondary opinions to lay those down, anything that's secondary to the gospel, secondary to what the scripture calls you to, that we would lay that down in order to love them well and point them to Jesus Christ. And by the way, a really good measuring stick, in case you were wondering, on on this in your life is your conversations and or your posts. Right? If, if you are unable to carry on a conversation with a human being without bringing in your secondary opinions about this or that, if you're unable to post anything, that does not have to do with that. Right? If you are unable to do that, that is a really good indication that it might be a time to do a little self-check. It might be a good indication that you're taking what is secondary and moving it into a primary role in your life. Oh, that instead we would be like that with the gospel. Amen? That we just couldn't stop talking about it, that that was our thing. Oh, that we would be like that with the primary thing. So again, Paul is not saying, not calling us to sin in order to reach sinners. He's not calling us to to agree with all people in order to reach all people, because by the way, that's impossible, right? Um, So then what is Paul calling us to do? Paul is calling us to what I want to call gospel primacy. You hear me? For Paul, there was no other thing. There was no other issue, no other concern that was more important, more urgent, more essential than the gospel. 
And Paul was clear in keeping those things that are secondary, keeping them secondary, while giving himself fully to preserving the supremacy of the gospel. Gospel primacy. In other words, I want you to follow me here. The correct view of the Mosaic law is not what saves a person. The correct stance on circumcision, the correct stance on the dietary law does not save a person. The correct affiliation with a political party does not save a person. It's the grace of God through belief and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that saves a person. How foolish would it be to allow a lesser thing, as important as that lesser thing may be, to allow a lesser thing to become an obstacle for the primary thing? For Paul, there was nothing more important, more urgent, more essential than the gospel church. Can we say the same thing? Can we say the same thing? Sometimes the way we talk, I get the sense that we would get just as much joy converting a liberal Democrat or a fundamentalist Republican than we would seeing an unregenerate sinner convert to a child of God. And that is incredibly heartbreaking. As we consider the people in our lives, our coworkers, our, our friends, our neighbors, let me ask you, what can you, what should you do in order to reach them with the gospel? Again, I'm not asking you to sin. I'm not asking you to change your opinions. Um, church, I'm asking you, scratch that. Jesus is commanding you to share the gospel with them. And so how can you do that better? Notice, Paul says in our text, that by all means, I might save some. <laughs> I want you to consider something. Consider again the incarnation. Jesus, who is perfect, right? Perfect, reigning in perfection and power on his throne, chose to put on flesh to come down to come down, to endure rejection, to humble himself so that some might see, so that some might hear, so that some might believe, and that some might be saved. Paul's call to us here is the very same thing, that, that he's calling us, the Bible is calling us to step out, to step in, to endure the possibility of rejection, to humble ourselves so that some might see, some might hear, some might respond and believe, and some might be saved. Um, I want to just address an elephant in the room when it comes to evangelism. If the primary reason that you are not sharing your faith is fear of rejection, which I know that's true for so many of us, let me tell you something that'll just make this easy. You will face rejection. You will, let me rephrase that, the gospel you present will face rejection. The gospel that we're called to, to present will face 
rejection. Church, our perfect Savior was rejected by many. The apostles that he chose were rejected by many. The giants in the faith that have gone before you have been rejected by many. So you will face rejection, and when you do, you are in good company. You are in great company, but by all means that some might be saved. And church, that some is worth it. That some is worth it. It, it, To put that differently, we are never going to reach the some if we're too terrified by the many. Here's what hit me really hard this week. Um, My neighbor might be the some. Your neighbor, your coworker might be the some. Are they worth it? We are all here today immensely grateful that Jesus Christ chose that the sum were worth it. And I am here saying, praise God, I am a sum. And I was worth it. And he came, endured rejection for me and you. I'm so grateful that Jesus said the sum is worth it. And I think more of us, church, need to be willing to take up that cross More of us need to be willing to face rejection because the some are worth it. And I I want us to see something here as we finish this morning. Uh, I want us to see something that I'm going to call gospel joy. Look at verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, what are these blessings here? What is Paul talking about? What are these gospel blessings that he's sharing with them? Several months ago, um, as a church, we started something called the Who's Your One initiative. And um, the idea with this was really simple, that, that we would begin, each one of us, to begin to pray that God would open a door for us to be able to sh- share the gospel with someone, have a conversation with someone about the gospel. Now, through this, we were really clear. Um, This doesn't mean that we invite them to church, although you need to be doing that, all right? That's a good thing. Do that. But that's not what this initiative was about. This does not mean that we invited them to dinner, although that is a great thing, and you need to be doing that. But we were really clear that the goal, the aim of this initiative is that we, all of us, would go out, right? Would go out and with our words, we would tell them about Jesus Christ and what God has done. With our words, we would share the gospel to them and literally provide them with an opportunity to respond. Literally just provide it. Church, God has used that initiative in our church. I have heard so many stories of us being terrified to step out in obedience, but we did and and, and just heard so many stories of the way God has used this. And I'd like to share just a really quick story from it. Um, How many know that, that we don't always see fruit right away? That for some reason, God does not seem to operate on our timeline so often. We walk away sometimes thinking, well, I just missed that. I should never do that again, right? We walk away thinking we missed it, and only to find out later that God was at work. Only to find out later that God was doing something, was never about us anyway. Only to find out later that, that, 
they were going to respond. It just wasn't our timing. Well, there was someone in our church who identified their one a long time ago, uh, picked someone close to them, someone in their family. And uh, I remember as the Who's Your One initiative kind of started, I remember getting this sense of how far-fetched it was to even pick this person. Like, it was this sense of, guys, we need to pray some big prayers. Because if God doesn't show up, this is not happening. We've been here before. We've done this before, Right? And I, I, remember, um, I remember seeing this, and as the initiative began, um, began to pray for his one and uh, look for opportunities with his one. And over the course of the initiative, God provided some of those opportunities. Praise God, right? Only there was no gospel response. Have you been there? There's no gospel response. But again, God's timeline's not always ours. Let me rephrase that. God's timeline is seldom ours. So earlier this week, um, as I was studying for this, uh, through great emotion, that person shared with me what had just happened. His one reached out and, and told him that there was there's just something missing in my life. Something's just not, it's broken, and, and get this, this is his one saying this. This is the one he, he's been praying for saying this. I think something's missing, and I think it's God. God is working, and thank God that this person was obedient to go out and share his faith. To take that, to take that chance, to, praise God that this person was intentional. Here's why I say this. As he was sharing with me this story, do you know what I saw all over his face? Do you know what I heard on every word he said? Pure and incredible joy. It was just all over. Just joy. Gospel joy. There is a joy that is very difficult to describe. There is a joy that is impossible to counterfeit. There is a joy that comes from seeing someone else's life changed by the gospel. There is a joy that comes from being used by God in someone else's story. Paul says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Having said that, I was also reminded about a very sad statistic. According uh, to Barna Research, this was done in 2013, so I hope our numbers have gone up, all right? Latest survey was that 52% of evangelicals share their faith. Here's why I say this. This means that statistically, right, if we were to divide this room in half, half of you would know the joy that I just got done describing. To the other half of us, we're taking my word for it. Half of us know and have experienced that joy when you see someone come to faith. 
Regardless of who you are, how old you are, how, how old you are in the faith, regardless, do you know that gospel joy? There is a joy that God is inviting you into. And God's word is calling us to reach our neighbors. You can put a name to that in your head. To reach your coworker. To intentionally put aside any barrier to the gospel so that many would hear and that some would respond. Church, your one could be part of that some. Will you go to them? Will you set aside your rights to go to them? Not to engage with them in their sin, not to agree with them on every issue. Please don't hear me when I say that. But to take every opportunity to tell them about the gospel that has so changed you in hopes that they would come to know and believe what Jesus Christ had done, has done for them, that we would follow the example of Christ and step into their world, be willing to lay down our rights to step in for them, and that we would echo Paul as he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. Let's pray. Lord, we... We need you. Would you remind us in this moment of your love for us? Would you remind us here of the goodness of your gospel, that while we were dead in our sins, that you sent your Son, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, that you did not remain distant, but that you came near, that you endured rejection so that people like me could trust in you for salvation. What a gospel. Now, Lord, would you send us out to share it? Would you bring people to our minds who we can share with? Would you make yourself known to our ones? Would you use us, Lord, to reach those whom you are calling to yourself through Jesus Christ? And Lord, thank you for the joy of the gospel, both to know you and to make you known. And we pray this in Jesus' name.